When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Alan from the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast. There's a special bonus at the very end of the show today. Please listen all the way through to hear a big reveal about Frank Sinatra's relationship with Marilyn Monroe and what Frank felt were the real circumstances behind Marilyn's death. Hey, everyone. This is the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast and iHeartRadio and Dan Patrick Podcast Network production. And I'm Joey Santos. And I'm Alan Nevins. I'm so excited for our guest this week, a dear friend and client of mine, Tony Opetisano, better known as Tony O. His new book, Sinatra and Me and the Wee Small Hours, is publishing today, June 8th. Already, before publication, the book has hit the bestseller lists on Amazon, and People Magazine is running a piece today uh, about it, and it looks like it's going to be a huge success. Tony was Frank Sinatra's road manager and confidant up until the day he died. And as you'll see from this episode, he's a natural-born storyteller. And let me tell you, his stories are are amazing, and he knows more about Frank uh, than anybody. So anyway, we're going to get into all that and uh, a lot more. And our theme this week is Secrets in the Small Hours. So I think that warrants a cocktail, don't you? Yes, let's grab a drink and dive in. So this is an interesting recording for us because I'm in Costa Rica. Joey is in Saugatuck, Michigan. Saugatuck, Michigan. And by the end of the week, we're both going to be here in Costa Rica. Yeah, I'll be flying to you in a couple of days. I'm in a log cabin by the lake. It's so peaceful and beautiful. We've been having fires every night. The weather is nice and cool. In the evening, it's beautiful. We did barbecues and cooking out and also going to some amazing restaurants. So it's been really fun. Well, here it's warm, but we finally got into the mode where you get up in the morning, you go do things in the morning. Oh, before it gets too hot. Yeah, take a little nap. And then, you know, we were like, where is everybody? But of course, by 4.30, 5 o'clock, everybody's out. The the bars and things are full. Uh, The restaurants are full. And then, uh, you know, in the evening, it's beautiful. It's like 75 degrees or something. Oh, nice. But it's great. We had dinner at the Four Seasons last night. It was unbelievable. It's on this peninsula that juts out into the sea, and it is the most incredible resort I've seen. Wow. With like this 10-mile drive or six-mile drive, whatever it is, from the gate all the way down this peninsula, and with jungles around you and this, you know, brick-paved road. It's unbelievable. And then we went to Tamarindo yesterday. We drove down there, which was about an hour, and just to see that. And it's got all these great restaurants lined up uh, along this incredibly wide, beautiful beach. Oh, I saw that on Facebook you posted. Yeah, that's cool. And now we've been told not to miss the volcano, that it's a must to go to the mud baths at the mo- volcano. Well, wait, wait till I get there. Yeah, we're going to wait. I have to work now. <laughs> cool. Well, I will pick up some sunscreen for sure. You need sunscreen, 50. Yeah. Absolutely. Girl. I want to get brown, but I don't want to get red then dead you know i'll wait i'll do it gradually no blister is not cute we went to uh last night there's a southern restaurant here uh on the water we heard that the the fried chicken was amazing so philip is here with us and he said we have to try it so we took a group of us about six or eight it was absolutely the best fried chicken we've had anywhere absolutely delicious really yeah absolutely it was perfectly cooked moist juicy crispy so we indulged ourselves so that my friend is my guilty pleasure fried chicken <laughs> so today is a no none of that stuff today it's all going to be grilled and vegetable that's it for me today until i get to costa rica and then there everything is so clean and fresh i'm not worried about it so right well i'm going to start getting up with will and maybe doing this run it it isn't easy and he's been running down the steepest driveway you've ever seen in the Western Hemisphere. And it's about a quarter mile long, and it just goes straight down. How does he get up? He runs. He, well, he has to walk up. You can't <laughs> run up it because it's, it's so steep. You have to walk up. They'll call you from the bottom of the hill. Pick me up in the car. 
I told him if he needed to, I would do that. But he's he's been pretty good about it. Oh, good. But it's so funny because the cars here, you know, are very fuel efficient, but they don't have a lot of power, right? So, you know, passing is trying to pass someone. It's it's uh, quite interesting because you you hit hit the gas and the car does not move. What kind of car is it? It's uh, something called a Cherry. I don't know who makes it. I've never heard of this company, but it has a sewing machine engine in it for sure. <laughs> and Coming up this driveway every time, we're like, oh, my God, are we going to make it? Or are we going to start rolling back down the hill? It can barely move up this driveway. Oh, that's hilarious. I mean, it is seriously steep. It's easily a 45-degree incline. Yeah, I will not be running up and down that hill. I can guarantee you that. I will be driving my yeah, cherry. But... My cherry and I. Yes. Me and my cherry. The cherry. <laughs> cherry. My broken cherry. So, Joey, what is the cocktail of the week? Uh, this week we did, I named it Come Fly With Me, after one of Frank's most popular songs. And uh, it's Jack Daniels, Fresh Lemonade, and Vanilla, which is a vanilla syrup, which is quite good. It's a little bit sweet. I use a sugar-free version, but there's a, a regular sugar version, too, so it's quite good. And so that's it. It's called Come Fly With Me. It's sweet, and it's tart, and it's really delicious. So, Joey, explain the secrets of the small hours theme. Obviously, it's tied to Tony and, and his, you know, late night conversations with Frank. But how does it apply to us? Well, I know for me, I'm up close and personal with my clients. You know, a lot of them are my friends and a lot of them are just my clients. And, you know, you have to treat both of that. I mean, I treat both of those things as the same thing with the amount of loyalty and respect and privacy that they deserve. And I don't gossip. And, you know, and that, that's the mistake a lot of people make. They think, you know, you're, it's really a privilege to be surrounded by that. And, the, and they trust you. And, you, uh, you know, I don't reveal anything that I hear or see. You know, I play that those three monkeys, you know, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. I have NDAs longer than uh, rolls of toilet paper, you know, and I don't want them to turn into a DNR. Do not resuscitate. You know what I mean? <laughs> so my non-disclosures, <laughs> I take very seriously. And it's their their personal lives and their privacy. And I'm, I'm trusted with those secrets. And so those are the wee small hours of the things that we hear and see and know that we keep very close to our breast. Yeah, no, of course, it's the same for me. I mean, that's why we haven't talked about my clients. I don't reveal anything. And, you know, and we've both been offered multi-multi-money to talk and I not enough zeros to sell somebody into the river. That's just not where I come from. I never will, so... Take your offers and stick them in your pocket. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. So this is exciting. And the two peas in a podcast. You're going to come here. We're going to do it here. Yeah. Well, yeah. When I, I don't even know what it'll be. I think it'll be kind of fun to wait and see what all the fresh ingredients are and what's available uh, to us there. And then I'll come up with something really simple and delicious and fresh and clean. And we'll do it right from there. We'll do it from the pool or we'll do it from the beach or and make it exotic, and people can see where we're at. Well, you're going to love this. The kitchen the kitchen has this massive window, and they slide open. Oh, fantastic. And so when you're in the kitchen, you see this extraordinary view. Yeah. Perfect. I'm in. I can't wait to get there. Yeah, it'll be exciting. So let's move to our interview with Tony. Okay, sounds good. Okay, we are back, and we are with... Tony Opetisano, known to his friends as Tony O. Tony O. Welcome. Thank you. I feel welcome. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. I made you a special cocktail in your honor. I'm looking at it. Your honor. Your um, honor. It's with Jack Daniels. Mm -hmm. It's with uh, fresh lemonade and a hint of vanilla. And it's called Come Fly With Me. Very Two of these. And you won't need an airplane. And we'll be flying. I <laughs> will be flying. Salud. Chantani. Chantani. Oh, that's good. Oh, I like that. Right? Yeah. That little vanilla at the end. That vanilla is very nice. Mm -hmm. Very nice. What very a good nice. idea. And, and, <laughs> and it goes down so <laughs> smooth. So it goes down He's so, very it comes humble. up even smoother. <laughs> after a few of these. <laughs> so this is your, uh, this is because you like Jack and water. And we couldn't serve Jack and water. That's too boring for us. We have to come up with something special. But this is really good. You could down this like punch. 
Yeah, see, that's the problem when I when I drink a drink that tastes like a beverage, I drink it like a beverage. Right. And then sure. all of a sudden you're like, why the hell? So I, I my drink of choice is really um, either good bourbon, Maker's Mark, like I a, a love a good um, old fashioned or a, Mart- or a um, Manhattan. Manhattan. Yeah. And or I just drink Kettle One on the rocks. Mm-hmm. Twist of lemon. That's funny. We have similar tastes. Oh yeah. Yeah. The first time I was at the compound, we were waiting for Jilly. And Frank went behind the bar, and he took two buckets, you know, oversized rock yeah. glass, filled them with ice, and he's got the bottle of Jack in his hand, and he says to me, so I know you drink Jack, how do you take it? On the rocks. And he looked at me, he says, were you trying to be a hero or something? I said, excuse me? He says, try it with a little water. He says, you get where you're going without getting hurt, and it tastes, <laughs> tastes pretty good. He says, and you can drink it all night long. And I've been drinking it like that ever since. By the time this episode airs, Tony, just so you know, your book will be publishing on this day. So the day the podcast comes out is the day your book book publishes. The book is called Sinatra and Me and the Wee Small Hours. And this has been a while coming because you and I spoke about this book many years ago that you were thinking about doing it. And then you sat on it for a while. Then um, I had a lunch with Barbara Sinatra while I was doing her book and we were at Spago and we were with the writer of her book and we were sitting there and I sort of thought, I think I need to mention this to her because you and I had already talked about, should we do this or not? And I said to Barbara Sinatra, you know, Tony O is thinking about writing a book about Frank and his time with Frank. And I was expecting maybe her to say, oh, he better not or whatever. And instead she came back and she said, oh, Alan, you must do that book. Because Tony knows more stories about Frank Very than flattering. I do. He knows where all the secrets are, or where all, where the, all bodies the bodies are buried. Are buried. Mm-hmm. And and that was really sort of what gave me sort of the go-ahead to uh, move forward mm-hmm. with you on this. And here we are, these years later, the book is in my hand. It's got this beautiful cover on it with the black and the blue, and this great picture of Frank. And we've already gotten in uh, our first review and it was a great review. So I'm very excited about the publication of this book. Yeah, I'm very flattered by the by the quotes and stuff that, that we got from people like R.J. Wagner and Angie Dickinson and George Slaughter, Tony Danza. I was surprised even Michael Bublé, mm. Lorna Luff, Dina Martin, a whole slew of people. But the, uh, the other people, Randy Tarborelli and James Kaplan, other people who have also written books about Frank, to be so complimentary about mine is really very flattering, flattering yeah. and humbling at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. It really is. The first person who actually started nudging me to write a book was, believe it or not, Nancy Sinatra Sr. She's the one who started pushing me way back in like 1993, 94. I didn't really start putting pen to paper until after Frank passed. And then, as you said, I put it off to the side for quite a while. But I'm just going to give one of the quotes here. A matchless portrait of a flawed, brilliant man and of a great friendship, a gem of a book. That's from James Kaplan, who wrote one of the Frank books, The Voice of Sinatra, the chairman. But let's talk about why it's called In the Wee Small Hours, because I think that how we came to the title is an interesting story. He enjoyed the evening hours more than any other time of the day. But at the same time, he was also a bit apprehensive of those hours. He always felt like if anything were going to happen to him, that would be the time that something would happen because most of the world was asleep. The guard was let down at that point because if you were in his company at that part of the night, then you were someone that he trusted implicitly and he would share a lot of things that he wouldn't normally talk about. Especially in his later years, it's as though he was reconciling how he led his life and what he would do the same, what he might not have done the same, things like that. And uh, even on the road, it was really funny when we would be on the road, especially in New York at the Waldorf Towers, where he had an apartment that he bought literally from Cole Porter. And there was a bar downstairs called Sir Harry's. And Frank lovingly nicknamed it Sir Herpes because a lot of working women worked in, were in that place. <laughs> Much like there was a bar at Caesar's Palace called the Galleria, 
And for the, the same gonorrhea. reason, he nicknamed that one the gonorrhea bar. <laughs> but at any rate, we would stay at Sir Harry's until they closed, and then we would move to Peacock Alley because he wasn't ready to go to bed at 4 o'clock. And we would hide out off the beaten path because that was right off the main lobby of the Waldorf. What, explain to people what was Peacock Alley. It was a restaurant during the day. It was open for lunch and dinner, and then it would shut down. But it was an open restaurant. Mm -hmm. But what they would do is they would seat us off in a corner and bring us a couple of bottles of booze and just charge it to Frank's room. And we would sit there till six, seven in the morning so <laughs> that he could be himself. But when we went upstairs, he would go to bed. And initially people would say, well, you know, to tell the, tell the maids not to, not to be vacuuming and stuff like this. No, 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 no. It's just the opposite. When he hears activity, he even though he's half asleep, it's comforting to him to know the world is awake and he feels safe now. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. I love that song, too. That's one of my favorite songs of his, The Wee Small Hours. Yeah. And it kind of tells a story that you told, if you listen to the lyrics. He was, for all intents and purposes, an autobiographical singer. Yeah. Well, his, you know, his phrasing, to me, is, is everything. When, when he sang a song, it wasn't even as good as his, uh, as his voice was. His phrasing was impeccable. You, he, he was a great storyteller in, 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 in music. He approached a song... He and I, having been a singer myself, which is part of how we met, we would discuss the art of singing to the point where, you know, anyone who happened to be around would have to walk away because they'd be falling asleep. But, I mean, he approached the song with the lyric as though it were a script. Uh -huh. And he always used to say, you should try to communicate a thought in one breath. You never run out of air when you're speaking, and you don't know what you're about to say till a second before it comes out of your mouth, but yet you don't run out of air until you've completed your thought, like just now. He said, so why then, if you're approaching a lyric, and you know ahead of time what you're going to say, why can't you sing that completely unbroken, mm -hmm. and it has more of an effect on the listener? And even in his later years, it's something that he was doing as a young man, it's, a, it's something that he developed uh, where he would swim, but he would swim underwater. And hold his breath to and strengthen his lungs. Before he went under, he would pick a tune in his head and he would set a tempo and he would dive underneath. And if he had to come up for air before he finished the phrase, he knew he had to work on it a little more. Wow, very interesting. And very I, and, interesting. And I've, I've imparted that to some younger singers over the years and invari invariably... They, they all used to say to me, well, geez, you, you and Frank thought that much about what you were doing up on the, up on the stage? Yep. I said, well, yeah, that's what we would do. We weren't selling flowers with their singing. <laughs> it's interesting. How very, did you meet Frank? How did this all come about? Because it's always an unusual story of how one gets into uh, you know, someone's life and then it sort of changes things. I met Frank through a wonderful, wonderful guy who became like family, and was a big mentor to me, as he was to a lot of people, a nightclub owner by the name of Jilly Rizzo. Uh, Frank did one of the best live albums, in my opinion, still to this day, in 1965, called Sinatra Live at the Sands. It was Frank with the Basie Band. And all throughout that show, he kept talking about Jilly's and Jilly's West and Jilly's West. So when I got old enough to start working clubs in the city, I got to check this place out. So I found it right next to what at the time was the Alvin Theater. Now it's the Neil Simon Theater. And there's a club there still, and they haven't changed it very much. It's now called the Russian Samovar, 256 West 52nd Street. And that was Jilly's. I actually befriended Jilly's older brother, ironically enough, named Frank as well, as my father was, Frank. And I started going in there in the late afternoon before the theater crowd would come in so I wouldn't have to battle the traffic because I was driving. Happy hour. I was driving in from Long Island. You, you busted me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But, um, and I was always in a tuxedo because that's the way we worked back in those days. And he says, what do you do? I says, well, I'm a musician and a singer. Really? Well, are you gigging tonight? I says, yeah. Through early, about midnight, which is unusual. He says, well, why don't you come back in? 
sit in with the guys. I'd love to hear what you do. Okay. I did. He liked what he heard. So I got to introduce you to my brother. Well, a couple of weeks later, he introduced me to Jilly, which was another funny story. And Jilly and I hit it off, and he kind of put me in the rotation with the musicians, where he would tell me, you got an open door here if you're in the city, you want to come in and sit in with the guys or whatever, Just, you know, make this as much of a second home as you'd like. And after about a year, come to think of it, in retrospect, he was probably vetting me to make sure I didn't have some kind of a motive. But he said to me one day, he says, you know, I think you'd be a great fit to meet the old man. Now, at this point in time, Frank went into his self-imposed retirement in the fall of 1971, and at that point, I was already pretty good friends with Jilly. Things turned out that Jilly was able to engineer introducing me to him in December of 1972. So he introduced us then. We hit it off, and the very first night that we met, I had done a gig earlier. He was coming into town because Frank Jr. was appearing at the Rainbow Grill. And so we went back to the club afterwards, and Jilly had me bring my guitar in, and he says, I'm going to close the club right at 4 o'clock. The old man wants to hang out, and I want him to hear you. Oh, jeez. I wish I hadn't had so much Jack tonight. <laughs> but um, maybe five or six tunes into, you know, how nightclub people work. You, you pick a song and a key and the tempo and you count it off and you, you go. It's all off the top of your head. Yep. And, you know. and Joe Patron, who was the piano player that evening, um, he said, you know, Tony, why don't, about six tunes in, he said, why don't you do something just by yourself? Okay. And of all the tunes, I was thinking, okay, I, I got an idea. And I started to do a tune that he had recorded a couple of years earlier by, by Antonio Carlos Jobim called How Insensitive. Because yeah. I knew he liked it. That's a beautiful version too. And he's sitting right across the piano from me. And I start playing chords and melody together like Bucky Pizzarelli, Joe Pash. That's where I learned how to do that stuff. And all of a sudden, he starts humming. And I swear, I almost dropped the guitar, right? Well, he goes from humming now to, with his eyes closed, singing. And, and now I'm accompanying him. And we went through the tune. I don't want to get into too much of the music, musicality of it, but, you know, sang it up to the bridge. I took the bridge. He came back in, but we finished together as though we had rehearsed it. And he looked across the piano. He said, geez, that was pretty good, kid. And I, I said something that surprised him. I said, well, thank you, Mr. Sinatra. I says, I'm, I'm no alveola, but I try. And he looked at Jill. He says, who the hell is this kid? How does he know who alveola is? <laughs> alveola had been his personal guitarist since like 1947. And that's the way the whole evening went. We were there till 7 o'clock in the morning. And um, that was the start of it. Well, you know, by the way, this is part of the reason that the publisher went after this book, because... Your recall of details is extraordinary. And I don't think at first they believed us when we said, oh, he remembers everything. But then when you had the meeting with them, I mean, you could recall every detail and you knew the dates, you knew the times, you, you could remember sort of everything. And it was very impressive. And that's why they thought, okay, this isn't just someone who's going to come in and be able to tell general stories. This is someone who's going to be able to tell detailed stories of Frank. As I say to people, when it comes to things that I personally experienced, you know, it's not a second or third hand regurgitation of a story that's half true in the first place. Yeah, but I can't remember my own stories from yesterday. You don't remember where you leave your glasses. Where are my glasses? <laughs> On your nose. On the bar. <laughs> The, the, the hell with yeah, those. Right, those glasses. The, the yeah. glasses that count yeah, the glass on the bar. in front of you. Drink that glass. <laughs> <laughs> so this was your first meeting. Yeah. And then some years passed. Where, where, no, actually, he kept coming back into the club, and he told me years and years later, uh, Jilly kept saying to me, Jilly would call me, and he said, listen, uh, are you coming into the club such and such a night? I said, uh, I, I can. Why? He said, well, believe it or not, the old man's coming into town, and he keeps saying to me, see what the kid's doing. And it got to the point where I felt comfortable enough bringing friends of mine who were also in the industry, singers, musicians, 
my same age group, and we were all in our 20s, and he was getting a kick out of it. And I come to find out in later years, he told me almost 20 years later, that part of the reason he went into that self-imposed retirement, in addition to wanting to spend more time with his family and his friends, was that he wasn't convinced that he was relevant to my generation. And by way of all these younger guys hanging on his every word and just thrilled to be in his company, uh, that coupled with, from what I'm told, big bags full of letters saying, Frank, at least record an album, do something. That's what convinced him to come back out of retirement. So we met in December of 72. I think it was June of 73 that he went in and recorded Old Blue Eyes' back. You know, what's interesting is that everybody calls everybody a superstar today. But to me, the superstars are those whose careers, first of all, spanned many decades. And, you know, in their 70s, 60s and 70s, are drawing in crowds of generations of people, whether those are 15-year-olds that are coming with their parents or their grandparents. You know, you go to an Elton John concert, and there's everybody from 12 years old there to 90. And we went to uh, a Cher concert. We went to see Cher when we... Was oh, that was across the board. Across Even the board. Even she was 90. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's funny you say that because that's why, with all the apprehensions that he had, which is also in the book, which a lot of the people that literally were involved in the making of the album were not aware of conversations that I had one-on-one with Frank, having been as close to him as I was, also having been a performer, sensing what his apprehensions could possibly be, and helping to defuse those. But he always kept his finger on the pulse of what was going on in the industry. And he was absolutely blown away that at age 79, 80, 80, any second, with the duets album, he knocked Pearl Jam out of the first spot in Rolling Stone. Yeah. That, he was just ecstatic about that. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed or you go on, but you know, if you go to iTunes and you look at what the albums, the top 100 albums, his best of album is there every single week. I've never seen it disappear. And so it's amazing, you know, the, the sales and the, and the ongoing. And now, of course, he's not even with us. And so that really sort of shows you 23 years it's been. That is crazy. Yeah. So when, the, when you hear the people, you're talking about people throw around the word superstar and this and that and icon, that's what a lot of people use now. Yeah. They don't have no idea what, what that status entails. Yeah, that's well, it's, an icon. they throw words around so yeah. arbitrarily these days. As a matter of fact, I did... I, did I an, blame the publicists. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, or the small-mindedness. <laughs> no, I, I, did, I did an interview not long ago, and they said, so you've been in the entertainment industry 50-some-odd years. I said, yeah. And they said, well, comparing the industry to the way it was when you grew up and the way it appears to be today, wh- what is one of the biggest differences that you, that you see? I said, well... Still to this day, I said, talent is talent. I says, and I prefer a show business where celebrity is a byproduct of talent. Thank you. Right. There are so many professional celebrities these days. Yeah. But, hey. Yeah. Well, because you have your picture on the side of a bus, but meanwhile, you sell real estate. You know, and then you're going to red carpets too. Hello? Aren't you a realtor? (laughs) Not that being a realtor is bad. No, but but I mean, but it's not. Take your stupid sunglasses off and show me the house. (laughs) (laughs) Enough with that already. You've had your critics on this. There's been more than 100 books written about Frank. Tell us a little more about what the real qualifications here for you to tell this book. And, you know, the, the later years when you got closer to him and... You know, how this came to be that he would tell you these stories. I mean, this was a nightly thing, right? This wasn't like, a, you know, every once in a while you'd stay up all night. This was something he did all the time. Well, I spent a lot of time in his company, both before I ended up technically working with him and the three years of his life after, between when he gave up performing and when he passed. And as I say, it's, it's as though he were 
trying to justify and reconcile how he led his life. And there were a lot of things that he felt that he hadn't told people, that he wanted them to know. Frank himself sat down on a couple of different occasions attempting to write a book, and he just couldn't do it. And there were other things that were driving him, which ended up driving me, where there were so many romanticized versions of things that happened in his life that were so far afield from the truth. But because they had been so romanticized for so long, Frank never bothered to try to straighten things out and tell the real world what really happened. Right. And when he would tell me a story, for example, how he got out of his contract with Tommy Dorsey, you know, there's that romanticized version in The Godfather of the mob guys sticking a gun, either your brains or your signature is going to be on. When he told me the actual nuts and bolts of how he got out of that deal, and I said, Frank, why, why have you never told the general public that? He said, first of all, the romanticized version has been embraced by so many people for so long. He says, and the other part of it is, I found out the hard way that I had to pick my battles with the press. He says, I could just picture myself saying, well, this is what actually happened, and have two reporters say, yeah, nice try, Frank. He said, so, I said, yeah, but the truth is the truth. He says, yeah, I know. I said, well, it's wrong, Frank. He's, well, you feel that passionate about it, you fix it. I said, at some point, I will. Mm -hmm. If you hear it enough times, you begin to believe it. Sure. Yeah. Or use it for your, for your own. <laughs> yeah, sure. For your own use. But uh, I don't think people really think about what these relationships are like. You and I have discussed that with our various bosses that we had a similar thing. You know, they don't understand how close you get and that you become like family and you hang out. You had rooms in Frank Sinatra's homes. I, I had my own room in each one of his houses, especially in later years. I, for example, I live in Toluca Lake. When he moved from the desert and lived full-time in Beverly Hills, between Beverly Hills and the house on Broad Beach Road, if I would go over, this is after he stopped performing, if I would go over and have coffee with him, there was no leaving. Right. I'd end up being there for three days. He said, where, where are you going? Right. And it would be like that. Same thing, if I went down to the desert to see him, I, I planned on being down there for a week or so. For clarification... There are a lot of people who are under the misconception that that I was there as Frank's caregiver. Mm -hmm. No. I literally was on salary with Frank literally for three years, from 1992 to 1995, when I became his road manager after Jilly passed away. And then when he retired from performing in 95, I told Sonny Golden... I, I feel extremely uncomfortable taking any money for spending time with the man who's a friend who's become like family to the point of almost like a second dad. Right. And so I was there as his friend. He had caregivers. He had, right. I mean, ultimately the last year and a half of his life, he needed, you know, a nurse and stuff like that. That's not what I was there for. We were friends. Barbara was not a night owl. Right. And so... It just was a good fit all the way around, even during the years when he was performing and before when Jilly was around. That's how we got as close as we got. It was all by osmosis through Jilly. But I kept spending time with Jilly and going down to the desert. And then little by little, Jilly and I started handling some people together, Joey Villa and other people. And he started helping me get talent for some of the projects I was doing. And consequently, because he lived around the corner from Frank and invariably not one single occasion would go by that I'd be down there for more than two hours and the private line would ring and it would be Frank. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? Well, come on over. And so that bond, it became that thick that early on. Yeah. Cocktail break. We'll be right back. We're literally within five days of the 23rd anniversary of Frank passing away. Mm -hmm. Barbara lived to about 90, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. Barbara Davis is now 90. Yeah. Yeah. And Angie Dickinson well, and is by the way, close this is not 90. a teetotaling group. No. Well, so I'm just saying, drink up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I might I have mean, to switch to brown yeah, all the time. It's, it's terrible. If you get some blood in your alcohol system, it's very dangerous. You know, it, it wasn't <laughs> until later that I became much friendlier with Barbara. Of course, I had met her on occasion. 
And, uh, you know, and then there was a false start for a book that she was going to do, sort of this love letter for Frank. And it just, it didn't, it was a problem for all sorts of reasons. And, um, and, and to be honest, I didn't really like her in the beginning very much when the early, the first time we went through the thing, (laughs) but I think as she got older, she softened. And when Frank passed, she even softened more and we became friendly and she started inviting me out to the beach. And then she wanted to know, can you come out and play with the poker and do mm-hmm. <laughs> play, play with the poker, you know, circle, which was Kirk Douglas and, and it was mm-hmm. all of those people. Right. And, you know, and I got to like her, but, you know, she was a fun girl. She was. Absolutely. She was a showgirl originally. She wasn't was she? a showgirl. Yeah, she was quite attractive, though. Extremely. Attractive yeah. and Extremely. fun. Yeah. And, you know, some of these women, Joan Collins, some of the other people we know, you know, I, I, they're uh, they're more fun than some of the people we know who are fifty. Oh, totally. I mean, who act like they're one hundred and twenty. Some of these people. I gotta we walk know. my dog. Yeah, <laughs> I gotta be at home at nine. I gotta be home at nine, oh, and I please. can't do that. And you know, and 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 this group, they live you know fun lives. They've lived long lives. They drink like fish and are as limber as I mean. We've been with Joan where she's been. She shopping. can do splits. Totally. I know she can do the splits. It's crazy. And, you know, they just keep going. They, they, it's their love of life. Yeah. Absolutely. And the brown liquor. And the brown liquor, which we're drinking Doesn't now. Doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt. Oh, yours is empty. Uh-huh. Well, is you want more? to see me do a split? No, it evaporated. He's... <laughs> <laughs> I need about another case of this. <laughs> uh, have you read any of the other books that have been written about Frank? Very few. Only because I, I look at the authors and I'm thinking, okay, this person is lucky if they were even in the same room at some time with, with Frank. Right. And, well, normally they're not know, even that and, close. And there are a lot of people that, that obviously that I'm flattered that quoted me in their book, interviewed me for their book, you know, Randy Tebra. I'm in Tina Sinatra's book. I'm in, you know, Nancy Sinatra's book about their dad. Um, I had a couple of conversations over coffee with James Kaplan when he was doing his first book about Frank. But, uh, no, it's like you said, there have been so many things that are just, they pick stuff out of the air or they find something in the paper and they put their own spin on it. And and just, you know, it's not much, it's not, it wasn't of much interest to me. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, only because you know I, I also represent the the uh, you know the the son of Audrey Hepburn, and you know they have their there's a lot of books about Audrey Hepburn too, but they have their two books that they say if you're going to read a book about Audrey Hepburn that's not our own book, these are the two that they feel are the most accurate. Yeah, uh, that's always interesting for me because there's so many books out there that a lot of them will go that's not even close to the truth, and yet the book has sold you know a hundred thousand copies. Well, again. It- I, part part of the reason that I felt compelled to do it, in addition to Mrs. Nancy telling me I should do it, I should do it, I should do it, what's in the book is what Frank himself told me. There are stories about things that happened in his childhood that he never told anyone. I befriended some of his relatives, Margie, who was like a sister to him. She was his cousin. And she validated some of the things that he told me. And she says, I'm, I'm really pleasantly surprised that he would share that with you. It only validates how close you guys have gotten. So it's basically a journey through his life, for the most part, through his eyes up until the later years when I'm talking about things that I did indeed personally witness and have a participation in. Let's go through the love life a little bit, only because Nancy Sinatra was his first wife. Nancy Sr. And they had, most of the kids were with Nancy, or were they all? All the kids. All, were with all the Nancy. kids were with Nancy. Yes. And, and this was a, someone he loved, even though he separated from, that he loved for the rest of his life and was always close to, correct? Yes. And I, I had a hand in keeping that relationship fluid. And she never married. She never married. And I asked her about that in later years, and she said, well, in the early years, she says, I never wanted the kids to be confused as to who their dad was, Mm -hmm. even though he was as present in their lives as he could be, considering his career and everything else. She said, and then in later years, she says, I'm thinking to myself, 
after after having been with Frank Sinatra, where the hell am I going? Right, right, <laughs> yeah. How, how long were they married? Do you do you know? They were married for thirteen years. So thirteen years with Nancy Senior, and his last wife was Barbara, and they were together how many years? They were together for twenty two. Twenty two years, and in the middle there was a lot of things going on. Because there was a great quote that somebody had told us. They'd mentioned to Barbara Sinatra. I guess she was out at lunch with a bunch of friends of hers. Mm -hmm. And someone said, Barbara, how are you able to stay friends with all of Frank's ex-girlfriends and ex-wives? And her response was, if I stopped talking to all the women who slept with my husband, I wouldn't have any friends. There you go. So, <laughs> and the funny thing is, the other side of that, jokingly, one night, Frank was talking. We were talking about how he got around town. And he said, he, he said, I did more than my share. He says, but trust me, he says, it wasn't as much as, as the popular held opinion. He says, otherwise, my little guy would be talking to you from a jar in the Smithsonian Institute right now. <laughs> and supposedly his little guy wasn't so little. According to Rickles, it had its own heart and lung. <laughs> <laughs> that, was Don, that was Don's line, not but he mine. Had, he did have a very active love life in the middle. He was associated with Joey. Oh. Well, he Joey. married Mia Farrow. Even before that, he was with Juliet Prowse. Yeah. And then after Humphrey died, he had a... Lauren Bacall. Pretty good affair with or Lauren Bacala, as he used to Lauren refer Bacala. to her for joking. He <laughs> even, from what he told me, had a, a, a brief fling with Victoria, someone as young as Victoria Principal. But then there were rumors that Mia well, Farrow's son. Ava Gardner, let's not forget. Well, well he was married to her. That was, yeah. I think he left Nancy he for her. He left Nancy for her. For Ava Gardner. And ironically enough, Again, because Nancy Sr. and I developed a really, really strong bond, I felt comfortable enough asking her, I said, you know, how was that? What was that like for you? I mean, here it is. You moved to California. He bought a house in Toluca Lake on Valley Spring Lane. Before Tina was born, it was just Nancy and Frankie. And he's hanging around now in Hollywood society, which is a little different. She was still an old-fashioned New Jersey Italian lady. Mm -hmm. He says, yeah. She says, you know, he he would philander and run around. She said he was feeling his oats. She says, I, I couldn't say that I blamed him. And, you know, you can only dangle a hamburger in front of someone before, so many times before they want to take a bite. She <laughs> says, but the fact of the matter is, that he always came back home to me. And he was always as good a father as he could possibly be. She says, the only reason I really acquiesced and gave him a divorce, this is how much she loved that man. She said, is because in those days, if you were known to be married with a family and were futzing around on the side, it was a major, major no-no, she said, and it was beginning to hurt his career. It was hurting him professionally. Mm -hmm. So she and protected him. And that's why I gave him the divorce. Yeah, interesting, for Ava. As the song goes, darn it, baby, that's love. Yeah. Well, we have a question for you. I know Joey's dying to ask you of it, and about because he did have a long, was it an affair? No, they were married with Mia Farrow. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Joey has a question he wants to ask you. Well, it, it was just that it's been rumored because the, her son, Ronan, mm -hmm. looks very much like Frank Sinatra. I mean, there's features, the cheekbones, the eyes, you know, but I mean, there's only so many sets of those and it's going to repeat itself. I wouldn't. We think you know something. We want you to tell everybody. Exclusive it's, to this podcast. Exclusive to this podcast. <laughs> it's in the and book. page six worthy. <laughs> and it's on page 26. No, I'm only kidding. No, it's, it's, I go into more detail in the book, but the long and the short of it is that Ronan was conceived, if memory serves, in March of 1987, I think, okay? And there were a, a variety of things that were going on at that point in Frank's life, professional and personal, where he was not even on that coast 
mm-hmm. for one thing. I looked back into what Mia's schedule was like. At that point, they had already been divorced for 19 years. She was shooting a film. I think it was called September. And the film was being shot at she and Woody's home in Connecticut all through the period where Ronan would have been conceived. And I looked back at Frank's performing schedule because in those years, even though I was very close to Frank and Jilly, I was sharing a house with Bill Miller, who was Frank's longtime accompanist, piano player, and conductor. Uh So I knew exactly by way of the performance calendar that Bill had posted in the kitchen. So I knew exactly where Frank was leading up to all of that stuff. He wasn't even on that. He wasn't even in New York. The closest he came was Atlantic City. And it was after the time that Ronan would have been conceived. In addition to that, Frank was having some physical issues where he had to go in for surgery. Uh After that, he went to Hawaii to shoot an episode of Magnum. With my father, the double episode. Larry Minetti, who's to this day a very good buddy. Mm -hmm. And when he came back, he had to go back into the hospital because he was a little bit impetuous and he had them remove something that he needed to have before it was time for it to be removed. And he was having a physical problem as a result of that. So he had to go back in for a a follow-up surgery it would have precluded him from even thinking about even if they were in the same place at the same time. Uh-huh. So, and again, in addition to that, if you look, look at photographs of Mia at, oh, Ron, yeah, at Ronan's age, you'd swear you're looking at a twin. Yeah, yeah, true. So, so you heard it right here. Ronan Farrow is not Frank Sinatra's son. And Ronan, we'd be happy to have you on to dispute this into a blood test right here in our studio. See, so we've well, dis- thank you for so that. we've dispelled that, that rumor. So if you're still thinking that, think about. Something I mean, else. I got blue eyes too. I'm not Frank's kid. Exactly. Are you sure? I'm Franco Pettisano. I got brown eyes. I'm, I'm not Sammy Davis Jr.'s kid. I'm Franco Pettisano's <laughs> kid, not Frank Sinatra's kid. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something else that brings me to to him just being the loyal guy that he was. Uh, he also was very active in the civil rights movement. Extremely. Yeah, I mean, he made some major changes, and he was a voice and stood up for fellow performers of color and. That was very admirable. I mean, he was a very admirable. Yeah, tell us one of of those great stories about touring the South with Sammy Davis Jr. Because I think it's important for people to hear that. Oh, in fact, would you tell the Elton John story after doing the duet album? Frank had a record launch party at the house on Foothill when he was living in Beverly Hills. And there was an eclectic group of people there. And it was kind of an open house. So even if you were not in the music industry, if you came with someone who was a friend of a friend, you know, yeah, it was a little open house. And, you know, you'd look around the room and there's Bob Dylan and there's Stephen Eady and, and Elton. I was with what I guess people would sometimes call the two-fisted guys, uh-huh. Gregory Peck, and, you know, and we're drinking and talking. And Kirk Douglas, no? Kirk was there. Kirk was, yeah, it seemed like he and Greg, Greg were always. Together. They were always there together yeah. with their wives. They were at the house more than just about anyone else, actually, in retrospect. And Elton, and for some reason, maybe it was the booze, maybe he was just happy, but Elton was a, a bit more flamboyant than normal <laughs> this particular day. And he was very, you know, Francis said, what a great thing, and blah, blah, and, you know, his hands and everything else. And I'm looking across the room, and this actor, who has a reputation of having some prejudices built into his DNA. Right. And when Elton... Let's just not say his name, but let's say his His drink initials of, are... His, 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 <laughs> I was going to say, his, his drink of choice was a... <laughs> and I guess he, he figured, after Elton walked away, here's my opportunity, because he had never met any of those fellas, from what I understand, mm-hmm. from the way he behaved, and he wanted a, an opportunity, saw an opportunity to introduce himself. And he came over, and I said, Frank, and he, Frank stood up to greet him, and he said, nice to meet you, fellas. And listen, I just, and he went off. Oh, mimicking. Mimicking Elton. Elton. Well, Frank was not pleased. No. And he looked over at Peck, and he looked over at Kirk Douglas, 
And he waited till he stopped talking, and then Frank poked him in the chest, and he said, lighten up, Shirley. <laughs> he says, because if it wasn't for gay people, show business for the last 200 years would have been in black and white. Yeah. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah, he had integrity, that word again. Yeah. Wow. He did. When he called him Shirley, I thought I was going to lose it. Though. Yeah, oh, I would have lost it. <laughs> and this actor's response was, that would have been priceless watching his face. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he shrunk to within, yeah, six inches of the floor. <laughs> so that only left him minus two? <laughs> <laughs> He's not a very tall guy anyway. Uh, <laughs> Do you have a favorite memory of Frank? Do you have one that really stands out to you? I mean, you can never, it's like saying, do you have a favorite song or a favorite movie? But is yeah. there one thing that sort of jumps to you when you think of Frank? There are a ton. I mean, for him to be so moved by asking me to do him a favor, I mean, he was very kind, very giving. He, he was extremely uncomfortable with people going overboard, thanking him for something that he did. He had one of the most philanthropic minds of anyone. He said, you know... The people that paid the freight, you got to give back, he says. And having money, all it affords you is to uh, allow you and the people that you care about their lives to be more fun and more comfortable, even if you've never met those people. And he said, you know, you make a few dollars, he says, you'll make some more. You come into this world with nothing, you leave with nothing, he said. You'll find out what I found out. I've never seen a Brinks truck at a cemetery. <laughs> The story, I guess, about the night that he gave me this this pinky ring. We were down in the desert, and it was maybe 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, and sitting out by the pool, drinking, talking, as usual, and he said, I need you to do me a favor. I said, fine. He says, I'll meet you in the theater. He had a freestanding theater on his property. And I went into the theater, he went into the house, and he came back with this little valise, and he put it on the table, and he said, listen... The contents of this bag are things that I've been putting aside since like 1939, and they all predate my legal relationship with Barbara. After I'm gone, he said, I don't want the contents of this to become a tug of war between Barbara and my blood. If you would, when the time is right, make sure that my family gets what's in here. And I said, fine, no problem. He proceeded to open the bag and item by item, this is this and this is that. And he went through a full description, everything from a kazoo that little Nancy gave him when she was a little girl to diamond encrusted watches to a medallion that he got from Golda Meir and, and Teddy Kollek in Israel for something he did in 1948, which is also in the book. And... At the end of it, that's when he said, you know, I have something that I need to do with you. And I said, no, Frank, went, no, 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 please, let me. And he took out this jewelry box and he put it on the table, slid it across, he said, this is for you. I've thought of you as family for a long time and I want to prove it. Frank, you don't, please, just. And that's when he gave me this pinky ring, which turned out to be, as he said, the original one that he used to wear in his left hand and when he married Barbara, he put a wedding ring on that hand and it wouldn't fit over the pinky on his right hand because he broke it to a Manchurian candidate and it was severely calcified. He had a replica made and this one he put away and he gave it. Bulgari made the replica. Bulgari made the replica. And as if that were not enough, after spending another two weeks or so down there with him, I come back to my condo and as I said, having been a singer, and it was extremely flattering that he respected me as a vocalist, he agreed that I made the right move to give up my career when I did, although he said you should have jumped back in. But at any rate, he knew that I lamented that I would never earn a gold record as a performer on my own. As a producer is a whole different matter, but as a performer... And so there's this package. And when I get back to my condo and I open it up and there's a note, this is for you, there's no discussion, and I unwrap it. And not only did he send me one of his gold records, it was his gold record of my way. And so out of reflex, after I wiped my eyes, I picked up the phone and I called the house in the desert 
and Vine, his gal Friday, picked up. And I said, listen, uh, a term we used to use lovingly. I said, is the gorilla up? She says, yeah, he's having his breakfast. Why? I said, would you please tell him I'm on the phone? I'd like, I'd like to speak with him. And she pulls the phone away from her ear. And it's like three, four in the, in the afternoon, which for him was morning. Yeah. And she says, uh, Mr. S? Yes, sweetheart. Uh, Tony O's on the phone. He'd like to talk to you. He starts chuckling and he says, tell him to read the fucking note again. There's <laughs> <laughs> no discussion. And he wouldn't talk to me. Yeah, there's no discussion because he knows what you would have said. Yes. I can't take this. Well, I've, you've, listen, I know how important it is for you and how much it means to you because you've never removed this ring. I see it. You, you have it all the time. And, and if I recall, it's in a photo he took or is it on an album cover or something where he's wearing the ring? Oh, yeah. He wore it all through the 60s. Is late, it on the book cover late, as well? It's actually on the book cover. Ah. It's on his pinky. Well, let me just look at the book cover. It's on his yeah. pinky. He's wearing there his, it. Is. On his pinky, right. on, his on, left, his on his left hand. Pinky on his left hand. All through all those Man in the Music specials, the movies that he did, Tony Rome, Lady in Cement, all those movies through the 60s, late 60s. Yeah. Was always on his left hand. I mean, you were talking about his philanthropy. I have one sort of last thing I want to ask because I heard, maybe it was from you, but I don't think so. But I heard there were many occasions where he would give money or send money to somebody that he knew needed it with absolutely no note, no indication of who the money came from. Right. And those people to this date don't know who gave him the money. True. Is there anybody you'd like to reveal or that you can reveal that didn't know that he gave him the money that now you could say it was Frank? He did a lot for Lee J. Cobb, the actor. Lee Wonderful Cobb. actor. He did quite a few things for Harry Guardino. The late Harry Guardino. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a funny one about Joe E. Lewis, the comic. Joe E. Lewis, the, Ar the Aristotle of the bottle, they yeah. used to call him. <laughs> and Joe E. Lewis was a degenerate gambler, God love him. Frank did the movie, The Joker is Wild, is, yeah. is based on Joe E. Lewis's life. And he was in Florida and he was in arrears to some wise guys for some gambling money. Mm -hmm. And he called Frank and he said, I need you to bail me out. And Frank said, well, how much do you need? And he was well up into the six figures. And Frank says, okay, give me an address where you are. Frank being Frank, he went to the bank, took out cash, wrapped it in a parachute, and sent it to him, wrapped in a parachute. <laughs> <laughs> You've been bailed out. But there is a story about a family or something where he sent cash over in a bag or something? Well, there were times on the road where, where we would read a story, he would read a story, because he always liked to read the local newspaper and see what things were going on, so he had stuff to talk about in his monologue. And if he would read about a story about some people down on their luck, somebody broke into their house and stole all their Christmas presents or something like that, invariably, even though the people in our group never had a clue, they just knew Tony was off running an errand, there were times when I would get into a car and go to a total stranger's house, knock on the door, May I speak to so-and-so, that's me, this is for you, in an envelope, open it up, 10,000, 20,000, cash. Oh my God, who's this from? A friend. He says things will get better. Have a nice life. Turn around, walk away. Wow. He Amazing. Didn't, he didn't want people, didn't want yeah. people to know. Harry was an absolute sweetheart, Harry Guadino. Yep. And we were about to have dinner together down in the desert one night, me, Jilly, Frank, and Harry. Harry hadn't seen Frank since he helped him out with something. And he says, oh, God, I, I can't wait to see him. I got to tell him how much I appreciate it. I says, Harry, say it once, let it go. It, it really makes him uncomfortable. Well, sat down. Harry started talking about it. Yeah, yeah, okay, that's good. Don't, that's fine. Thanks. Don't worry about it, Harry. Well, two or three drinks later, he starts up again. And I kicked Harry under the table. And, and <laughs> Well, and before you know it, he's doing it again and we we haven't even ordered dinner yet we're like three drinks in and finally i could see frank's ears getting red and i'm going okay here we go to give you an idea of his sense of humor as well frank after hearing this one time too many he said listen doing things for people makes me feel good okay so at the end of the day i'm a selfish prick it's got nothing to do with you <laughs> now what are we having for dinner <laughs> Well, there you go. There you have on it. that one. Well, thank you. Thank you, Do Tony. Do not thank miss you. this book. It's called Sinatra and Me and the Wee Small Hours. Tony Petisano. It's been published by Scribner, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster. 
It's getting fantastic reviews. And if you have any interest in the music business, if you have any interest in Frank Sinatra, or you just like bios in general, I highly recommend it. It's it's quite an emotional book, and I think you will enjoy it. And Tony, we can't thank you enough. Thank you for asking me, and thank you for being my mentor and helping me get in front of such influential people. In yeah, New well, York. for 90%, I'll do a lot of things. <laughs> I knew that was coming. Of course. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. Thank you. It is rumored that Frank Sinatra had an affair with Marilyn Monroe. Is there any light you can shed on that? Well, according to Frank's recollections, Frank's reminiscences with me, while he was very attracted to Marilyn, he said that he could never bring himself to go there with her. She wanted to big time. And he said, you know, she was just too fragile and she was always looking for a father figure to protect her in her life. And he just said as much as he was attracted to her physically, he just couldn't bring himself to do that and then possibly just walk away and damage her yet again. She was very damaged by so many people before him, and he would rather have just protected her. And that's what he did. With regard to the whole thing with the Kennedys, she came up to the Cal Naval Lodge the week before she passed away, which he was a major owner in. Uh, Sam Giancana evidently was there as well because the McGuire sisters were performing and Sam was having an affair with Phyllis. And she spent some time publicly with Frank and those people. But the reason that she was actually up there, according to what Frank remembered, was that she was meeting privately with Joe DiMaggio, who lived in San Francisco, and it was in close proximity to San Francisco instead of him coming down to LA. And there would, would have been too many eyes watching if he had come down to LA and met with her. So they met somewhat clandestinely up there in Lake Tahoe on the North shore of Lake Tahoe through James Bacon, another man, older man who had had his way with her. She asked James Bacon to set up a press conference. When word got out about the press conference, there were a lot of people that got very nervous and very worried, specifically in Frank's recollections, Bobby Kennedy, because he was afraid that she was going to tell the world what was going on between she and not only Bobby, but she and Jack, because they had shut her off completely and she couldn't figure out why they had done that. In the interim, in addition, the wise guys, by way of Sam Giancana in Chicago, who had helped the Kennedys get into the White House in the first place, were thinking about using her to blackmail the Kennedys. And so everyone in the mix was concerned exactly what this press conference was going to be all about. She never said what the press conference was going to be about. And that, in Frank's mind, is what did her in. Ultimately, unfortunately, the press conference was going to be that she was announcing that she and Joe DiMaggio were getting back together. And Frank lamented that if they had just been public about what the press conference was about, she might have lived considerably longer. He felt that she was murdered as a result of all these factions being worried about exactly what it was she was going to say at the press conference. Well, we knew it was going to be interesting talking to Tony. I mean, who, who doesn't want to hear great stories about Frank Sinatra? There's so much information out there, much of it inaccurate. So it's great to hear from someone who knew him and knows something about him. Yeah. And it's nice to know that it's not gossip. I mean, it was really approved by the family and they, 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 they allowed him to tell these loving, great stories about him and um, things we didn't know, but just about his character, who he was as a man, who he was as a father. It's very, very uh, interesting to, to listen to. He, you know, he had great camaraderie with this guy and he was so blessed to know him. And you mm -hmm. can see he, you know, tries to protect him at every turn. Yeah, so. he did. Everything was loving. It was, it's brilliant to, uh, to listen to. So, and it's going to be a great read. So, As always, we want to thank you for tuning in. If you like the podcast, the best way to support us is free. All you have to do is share it. Share it with your friends. And don't forget to tune in each week for our Two Peas in a Podcast segment, where we go on Instagram and Facebook Live, and I attempt, attempt to teach Alan 
<laughs> my uh, easy recipe for the week. It's live, so what happens there stays there. It's a lot of fun, and we also want to thank those of you who have been tuning in each week. And don't forget to comment, leave us some messages, you know, tell us what you like, tell us what you'd like to see, and we'll make it happen. If you're interested in sending us questions or want to tell us how much you love us, you can send a message on social media or email to contact at twoguysfromhollywood.com. We'll talk at you soon. Yes, we will. Two Guys from Hollywood is hosted, created, and produced by Alan Nevins and Joey Santos. Produced by Lauren Boone. Editing and post-production by Nathan Moody. Music by Luca. Executive produced by Dan Patrick. It is also executive produced by Paul Anderson and Nick Panella for Workhouse Media. This podcast is a production of Renaissance Literary and Talent and Dan Patrick Productions in association with Workhouse Media. Two Guys from Hollywood is a production of iHeartRadio and the Dan Patrick Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.